0: So, we as a group of people want to protect ourselves from opinions. Hopefully, we're not just getting together and celebrating uh, our latest opinion or, or our latest trend, but instead, we really want to root ourselves and moor our sense of direction into the scriptures so that for the last several weeks, we've been simply in the book of Colossians, opening up seeing what God might have to speak to us. And then the next week, we're so creative, we just pick up where we left off the week before. And as I've shared with you for the last couple of weeks, this this is more than probably any other book of the Bible. Trying to hear God speak to us from the book of Colossians is similar to trying to drink water from a fire hose. There's so much coming at us that we're going to skip over a ton of it. And so I hope that as you're doing this, you're, you're, as we're running through this, as we skip over things or, or there's questions that might raise in your mind or, or things that come up and you go, well, I don't know about that or what, what's, what's, I want to hear more about that or that doesn't even make sense, um, then man, make a note of that. That's something we always want to be digging into in gospel community during the week. And so when we get together throughout the week, we hope this is uh, a more, uh, even a fuller representation of what it looks like to be a group of people who huddle around God's word and see the gospel as it applies to the questions of everyday life. So if you find yourself thinking, we skipped that, or man, I wish we would say more about that, man, write that down. We would love to to talk more about that and make this more of a dialogue than just a monologue. So in Colossians chapter one and two, we have seen laid out for us some of the loftiest language that the Bible uses to describe who Jesus is. The loftiest possible language. That Jesus is not just some guy who came and Did some noteworthy things, but Jesus is the image of God. He is God himself, the fullness of the deity of God, walking around like a human being. And he's not just a guy that showed up 2,000 years ago, but instead he is co-eternal, the early church called, uh, called Jesus, with the Father. He is just as eternal as the Father. John 1 would say that, that in the beginning, God was already speaking a word of redemption and reconciliation in Jesus Christ, and that word was being spoken even at the beginning. And through that word, all things, according to Colossians 1, have come into being. And that word of justice and redemption in Jesus hold everything together. So much that as we saw last week, Christ is in all and He's through all. Jesus is it. There is no other alternative. And Jesus is so great that there's there's no thing that needs to be added to that which Jesus has already accomplished for us. What Jesus has done for you and to me to reconcile us to God is sufficient. It's complete. Such that Jesus' last words to the people around them that betrayed him and hung him on the cross was not, I'll get you. But instead he said, forgive them. And he said, it's finished. It's completed. It's done. All that was meant to be done to draw us back to the Father in Jesus Christ was completed and Jesus walked out of the grave to shame all the authority that was once holding us down. That's Jesus. He's amazing. He's bigger than just a guy. He has changed everything such that we mysteriously have been united with Him and in God's great mercy He has Accredited all that is good about Jesus to you and I when we trust in what he's done for us. And he's accredited all that which is guilty and shameful and cursed about you and me to his perfect and spotless son so that his son wears all of the shame and the reproach and you and I get to enjoy all of the blessing forever and ever. He's united us with him. So let's pick up on that. As we begin to apply that to what that looks like, maybe as a group of people who call ourselves a church or people who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, we see a highly practical turn in the middle of chapter 2, and we'll pick up verse 3, we'll read the entire chapter, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1, we'll read the entire chapter all the way to the first verse of chapter 4. So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. and Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In this highly practical section of Scripture, in this chapter, we are given the picture of what it looks like to be united with Christ to be changed and transformed from the inside out, and as a result, begin to put to death and take off all that is not fitting with what Christ has done for us, and to begin to put on and dress accordingly all that is fitting for what Christ has done for us. And the last part of this, we see that if that does not exist, if the Gospel does not exist in our most intimate and closest relationships, then it can't possibly exist in the world and in the church. So, since we've been united with Jesus, we've been changed from the inside out, right? Jesus has changed our identity. We're not like a dirt clod, we're like a bar of soap, right? You can wash a dirt clod all you want, it still becomes dirt. You can wash a bar of soap all you want, eventually it becomes clean. Jesus has transformed us to be like Him, to be given the ministry of reconciliation from the inside out. And so what is left for us in this broken, fallen world is to begin to chop off all of the things that do not look like the image of God shown to us in Jesus. And God brings us alongside in this. He invites us to be a part of this we've been united with him so that there's this shows up all throughout scripture so now that according to galatians two twenty, if we've been crucified with christ right so if we're united with him and all that is bad about us is thrown on jesus and all that is good about him is thrown on us by god's grace then if we're crucified with him then it's no longer i who live we swapped The word we use typically is imputation. God has swapped. He's transferred what was true about Jesus to us now that we no longer live and say it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and given Himself up for me. Romans 8 puts it this way, but if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives us life Because of God's righteousness. So God has changed us. God has done something for us finally and completely in Jesus Christ that has changed who we are. We're no longer orphans, but now we are sons and daughters. And so what is left for us, since Jesus has done this, he didn't wait till we ask for his permission. He did it without us. All of the sins that you and I have committed have been committed since Jesus Christ died on the cross for them. And since that is true, and we are now no longer orphans, but we are now sons and daughters, then we have to stop acting like orphans and slaves, and piece by piece, we learn to act like sons and daughters. We do not approach God as a slave, hoping that he won't beat us and humiliate us. And that's good news for some of you who are, you're you're convinced that this Bible was written to make you miserable, right? You're convinced that God is up there like like a kid with with a magnifying glass ready to burn the ants when they step out of line, right? And and I want to tell you that's not true. God in his goodness sent Jesus to die for us before we even had figured all of that out. And that's incredibly good news. He's united us with his son. And so now all that is good, all that is great about Jesus, he's given to us. We don't have to act like slaves to a master who is brutal and cruel instead we are like sons and daughters who approach God asking as we just said that he's a good father he gives good and perfect gifts there are no there's no shadow of turning in our father and since that's the case we begin to act accordingly we partner up it seems in some mysterious fashion with God and God's spirit in us And the language that's used in the New Testament is sometimes confusing. Did you catch what we just read? It's it's us, but it's not us, right? It's, It's Christ in you, but it's you. And so as we grow into the image of Christ, we are drawn into obedience, knowing that ultimately God and His Spirit gives us the power to do it. The best picture we see, I think, um, a brilliant man and Pastor Jerry Bridges uh, who wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness that has probably changed the way we see what it looks like to follow Jesus in the world. But the farmer will come along in these fields and he will plow and he will drop the seed in the ground and he will hopefully, if it's possible, depending on where he is, he will irrigate, he will fertilize, he will do all sorts of things. And then if everything works out right, he'll come out and he will reap what he has sown knowing that he isn't the one who caused the seed to germinate. He isn't the one who caused the rain or the moisture to fall. He isn't the one who caused the seed to sprout, or the plant to grow, or the sun to shine. He isn't the one who caused the plant to pollinate, to bear fruit. But on the other hand, even though that is completely out of his hand, and it's completely up to a powerful force beyond his control, it's still given to him plow, to plant, to water, to fertilize, to reap, as Jesus would even say, what we've sown. Knowing that ultimately God is in control and does the powerful, mysterious act of growing and germinating and pollinating, but yet at the same time God has invited the farmer into a partnership. and So also we are invited into that partnership, we see here, so therefore we we put that which is not like Christ to death. We readily look for the places that are inconsistent with the character of Christ. And we shared this last week. This means that we do so imperfectly. But on the other hand, we do so diligently, not looking for ways that we can be legalists and point out the flaws of the people around us, because that really doesn't take any talent. Right? My flaws, I'm well aware, are visible to you right now. and You're not special because you can see them. Instead of looking for that which is flawed in us, we look for the opportunities to speak the gospel at the deepest possible level. Not settling simply for sexual immorality as the topic of our conversation, but we address what the gospel implies to us in levels of impurity and passion, and even desire and covetousness. And even the base of all sin, idolatry. Believing something about God that's not true. We take those things off. And then... We want to talk about today when we put those things off, we see that Christ is what is most important. In verse 11, we begin, it says, here, that is the possibly here, as we're talking about what it looks like to put to death sin, or here, as it possibly means the church, the people who call themselves followers of Jesus. It says here, there is no distinction between Greek or Jew. There's no distinction, even in Galatians, it says for that church, there's even no distinction between male and female. There's no distinction between circumcised or uncircumcised, that is, the religious people with the religious marks of a religious covenant or religious chosen people, or the people who don't have any of those marks. In Jesus Christ, there's no barbarian or Scythian, which at this point would have been the farthest reach of the known world for the Colossians. You could be a foreigner, but in Christ, that's not really what's important. In fact, it's not even important whether or not you're a slave or a free person. But instead, it says Christ is all and in all. There's a picture here I want you to see just very briefly. There's, there's something going on in the language that I want to, you might have like a cliff's note or a little, or sort of, not cliff's note, you might have a footnote, excuse me, cliff's note, that'd be great. Um, that's what I'm here for, right? So, so you might have a footnote somewhere at the end of that verse, and it says that Christ is all and he's in all. And so that first all is, is a neuter word, so it's, it could be like things, stuff. Christ is all things. But then it says in all, and then it uses a masculine word like all people. Just get the picture There, Christ, he's all things. He's in all things. Everything that exists, Christ has a will and a purpose, and God can use all things to bring glory to his son, Jesus Christ. But it also says that he is in all, in all, and it means people. Remember what we said about Jesus uniting himself with us? One of the greatest mysteries is that Jesus Christ is not... A ruling king who is barbaric, who sends his people to die for his kingdom. He is a king who lays down his own life for his people. He's a good and loving person. He's not a high priest who tells us what we ought to do, but apparently he is a high priest who has come to live with us, among us, and wear the exact same shame and exact same temptation, the exact same pain of death so that we can sympathize and he can sympathize with us. And that means that if Jesus is in all, then that means that every time there was hurt, every time anyone is snubbed, Jesus is snubbed. Every time anyone is oppressed, Jesus Christ is oppressed. He's in all people. And in some mysterious fashion, whenever we are broken, whenever we are hurt, He is united with us in such a way. He is in all of us in such a way that He wears that pain for us. He suffers. He suffers. us so that we would have eternity free of suffering so since jesus is in all of us since he's united in all of us then we start to dress differently it says put on then as god's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness patience, bearing with one another. And if, just in case, if one has a complaint against another, that's not to you. You guys would never complain against each other. You guys are awesome. You love each other. You don't have anything against one another. If, though, it's just so happened that you might have a complaint against some of the people in this room, including the people on the stage, that is me, then please forgive each other. Not because they deserve it, but because the Lord has forgiven you. This is what it begins to look like. The language here of putting on clothing has a lot of different possible meanings. It might simply just mean that since we're putting off sin, we're putting on something different. The picture could be of a uniform. You typically, typically know who the police officers are in the world. You can see them because they dress a bit differently than the rest of us. True? You can typically tell what's going on with a person and you can tell their position by their uniform. You can tell their position, their vocation, their purpose by their uniform. Now, you can conjure up all the pictures of all the kind of uniforms you can imagine. There's a police officer, you know when someone walks in with scrubs, something's going on there, right? If they pulled up in, in a car, it's a normal car, they're a nurse, but if they pull up and get out in scrubs and it's a Mercedes, they're a doctor, right? It's fitting of their vocation. It's fitting of their position. It's fitting of their position. Hear the good news here. Jesus has done something for us that has transformed our position before God. Jesus has changed our position. We are no longer, did you catch that? We're no longer those who are cast out because of our sin. It says here in verse 12, we're God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Beloved. Our position has changed. We are no longer objects of wrath according to the verses before. We are no longer walking and wandering away from God, but He has chased us and drawn us back in Jesus Christ such that we are now chosen ones. We are not the people that got picked last in gym class. Our God, before the foundation of the earth was laid, sent His Son to pick us first. Our God has chosen us. We are now holy and beloved by God. Our position has changed, and so must our uniform. Imperfectly, of course. But there becomes a sense in which because Jesus has changed our identity, we start to dress and look different. The other way that this might have been uh, applicable for this particular church is the earliest church practiced something really interesting. The the Essenes were a group of people that when they would baptize believers, people who had confessed Jesus Christ as Lord were baptized, and as soon as they were done being baptized, they immediately changed clothes and they put on white robes. So you see this even in in Christianity today. People still dress in white. It's, It's not an accident. There is meant to be an actual picture that has its roots possibly in some of the earliest followers of Jesus' community, and that is... That when you're changed, that you are transformed by God and baptized into, into his death, not that we fear drowning, but instead we know that we're coming out of the grave with Jesus Christ, we start looking different. And the white robes that are worn in baptism are meant to show us what Jesus Christ has done for us. We just give you a connection shirt t-shirt. I apologize. White robes, tough to work out here. It'd be tough to ask you to change clothes after you get out of the baptistry as well, but that, that's a whole other topic. But the picture seems to be implied here that those who have come into Christ and they would have heard this and known this would have known that once you're baptized into this community of of Jesus, you start dressing different. In fact, immediately. We dress different. We put on something different. And it affects the way that we live. It affects the way we prepare ourselves in the morning. And instead of first reaching for your clothes, it says apparently the first thing we ought to reach for in the morning it's a compassionate heart. Let's just run through these words. Maybe, maybe they, if we kind of define them, they'll become more applicable for us. But think about what that means to, at the beginning of the day to put on compassion. I heard one definition of compassion is this. A deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. A deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. Whose needs are you consumed with? Whose needs are you most sensitive to? What's the first need? Do you wake up in the morning and immediately think, I need coffee? Or do you possibly, possibly, partnering with Jesus Christ, being changed, wake up in the morning having a deep sense of awareness of the need, the people you were going to meet that day? Is it possible there's a greater need going on? reach dress in compassionate hearts not only compassion but kindness this is something that paul uses on a regular basis and it i hope it's not easy to overlook but it really is a thing that people who follow jesus this is going to hurt some of you are nice they every day clothe themselves in kindness they, they really they wake up in the morning and they think, how, how do I have a deep sense of care for the people around you? But how do I also show kindness? They don't think first and foremost of the ways that they are wronged, but they think first and foremost of the ways in which they can show care for those who are in need. And they have a Christ-like sense of kindness. And kindness is ultimately what Christ has done for us. And so kindness is a Christ-like attitude toward others hokey as it may be this really is a place where your wwjd bracelet might come in handy if that's one of the things that you put on and it reminds you to go hey jesus was kind of kind he's kind of nice to people like me you know dying on the cross for me maybe it wouldn't be a stretch for me to put that on today and show that kind of kindness to others do they deserve it absolutely not but neither did you and that didn't stop jesus and so if that's the case then we put on kindness We have a Christ-like attitude toward others. But just like the layers of sin that go deeper and deeper, so also are the layers of compassion. Kindness, under that level, is humility. If kindness is a Christ-like attitude toward others, then humility is a Christ-like attitude toward yourself. Get that. If... If kindness is what happens when we think about how Christ treats others, then humility is what we think about when we realize Christ has done something for us. Kindness is showing Christ to other people, humility is realizing that Christ is above all and in all. You're not special, He is. And so, therefore, we do something at the deepest level. We think less of ourselves, not more. We resist the temptation to build our self-esteem and instead we look at Jesus and realize that our value is not in ourselves, but our value is what God the Father has paid to ransom you and me. Anybody who's bought and sold anything on Craigslist or eBay knows that you can brag all you want about the value of something, but in the end, it's only worth what someone will pay for it. It's only worth what someone will pay for it. Walk around here, ah, oh, I bought this for so and oh, good luck. Try to sell that for that one, right? How much is your car worth? It's worth what someone will pay for it. And that truth, that axiom that's true in our own economy is true about you and me. Your value is not in what you have done, but it seems, and we see this humbly, that our value is in what has been paid for us. The perfect and spotless Son of God was laying on the altar so that you and I would have life. And God, instead of looking at you and thinking what a wretch you were, looked at His perfect and spotless Son and laid Him for us. Nailed Him to a cross. He loved the world so much that He gave His Son. I mean, I love you, but I don't love you more than my daughters. What an insane love that God would give His Son for you and me. What value does that give us? And as a result, doesn't that change our sense of arrogance or humility? And isn't our attitude formed by Christ different when we look in the mirror? You're not special Jesus is. But it gets worse. It says meekness. This is one of the ways that humility plays itself out. We are meek. Jesus shares with us, we saw this a couple weeks ago, that he is starting a kingdom, bringing it to earth that's upside down. In his kingdom, the last are first, the first are last. And the people who inherit the earth aren't Bill Gates. The people who inherit the earth aren't the most ruthless and the most powerful. The people, according to Jesus, that inherit the earth are those that are meek. And the reward that comes to us in God is from meekness. It's not from arrogance. It's not from greed. Something crazy going on that God is doing. It turns us upside down. And this is different. When you dress yourself in this in the morning, it changes everything. Not just meekness, but it says gentleness. Patience. This picture of being patient and gentle to one another. These are the ways that we approach one another. In fact, meekness is the way that humility changes our approach to people. I mean, do you get what you want, or is it possible that our approach to people ought to be we might give? Is Jesus really right when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive? And meekness is the resulting attitude of approaching people in that way. Patience, the last one on the list, it's the effect of having a kindness in your heart as you react to one another. So meekness is our approach to others. Patience is our reaction to others. Now, let me just warn you right here, you probably heard this as a cliche, one of the worst things, and it's the last on the list, I think it's because it's the most painful, one of the worst things you can possibly do, just speaking as a friend here, is to ask God for patience, right? Asking God for patience is like asking a a trainer, right, a a physical trainer for flexibility, right? Hey, physical trainer, my personal trainer, I want to be more flexible. He's like, I can do that. And a personal trainer will come about giving you patience, um, excuse me, giving you flexibility the same way God will give you patience. He will stretch it. He will test it. And he will put people in your life that push all your buttons. So be careful on this list. When you wake up in the morning and you say, "I want to be patient," you are saying beforehand, "I don't care what people are going to do to me. I'm going to react in a particular way." And asking that God would do this, I'm going to warn you, has great fruit. It has amazing fruitfulness, but it also is painful. Because the way that God has ordained for us to grow in patience is painful. And the way that all these things are held together, it says, apparently, as we forgive and bear with one another, they're held together with love. It binds these ideas together, but it also binds the church together. Let's just apply that for a second. I don't have as much trouble being patient with the people that I love. And the more that I love them, the more I recognize where they are and I have kind of a really humble sense about where they ought to be. I learned this, I mean, I had a, you know, as we were raising children and they just kept on waking up in the middle of the night and they kept on going to the bathroom while wearing clothes, not in the toilet. And they kept crying. And they spit up on you, right, when you don't need to be spat up upon, right? They blow up their diaper, right, when you don't have time to do that. And there was something weird that happened. I, anyone else, be as graphic as you want in your imagination, anyone else could have done that. And I might have killed them. But these two adorable little girls do it, and it's like, I mean, we, I mean, we, even, we even like, oh, what did you do, what you do? I mean, what an incredible patience. What an incredible patience to show to a person. And I believe that it comes out of a deep and abiding love. When they're running down the driveway and they trip and fall, I don't shame them or punish them for tripping and falling. I love them. And so I run to them. I grab them. I pick them up. And so it's possible that maybe some of the deeper issues here, if you find yourself not having humility but instead arrogance, if you find yourself being more demanding than meek, if you find yourself being impatient and and you have a temper that people always seem to attack, well then, what if you really loved them like Jesus loved them? What if you really forgave them like Jesus forgave you? It might change things. It says here that, because we know that it changes the way that we get together as a church. So here's the implications for the church. It says, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This and a couple other places in scripture explain why we do what we do here. If You ever wonder, why do we sing these songs? What is he talking about? It's because we, more than any other group of people in the entire world, wrap ourselves around good news the thing that draws us together in love is not that we have a task necessarily but we have good news there's no other religion in the world there's no other faith in the world that has this and when they get together for religious exercise they must do they must pray they must bow they must kneel They must say certain things. Maybe they have to get up and make a pilgrimage to a certain place. They must hope that when they die, they'll have enough good stuff on their side. They hope, and we don't practice any of those things. Instead, when we get together, we don't wish that God would. We don't maybe try to please God. We have incredibly good news that we celebrate. We can't keep it a secret. God has done something for us. Something for us that we would never be able to accomplish for ourselves. And that affects what we do together. We get together. It's like the shower method, like the the shampoo method. We get together. We rinse, lather, and repeat over and over and over again. What are we going to do next week? There's good news still. We're going to talk about it, make much of it, and sing about it. Because some news is too good to just say. Been to a birthday party recently? And they, they, they bully you into this, right? You don't even like the person. You could, hey, happy birthday. And that could be it. They could get together. But that's not what they do, do they? Oh, no. Happy birthday. Too. It's like a universal song. It's ABCs and happy birthday. Everyone knows this song. Because some occasions, you can't just talk about it. You kind of have to sing about it. A couple years when the World Cup comes on, watch what happens spontaneously in the crowd of people watching this massive soccer event. Too big of an event to just cheer and talk about. They start singing spontaneously. There is no other religion, there is no other faith that does this. And so, if you find yourself on the outside looking in, like, what are these Jesus people all about? Why are they singing? Here's the explanation God has done something for us, and it dwells in us so deeply that we have to let it out. How long can you keep a headache a secret? How long can you keep a stomach ache a secret? There comes a point where what's going on inside of you is too powerful to keep to yourself. And your headache becomes visible in your posture and your behavior. Or your stomach ache curls you up into the fetal position. So, also, the Word of Christ dwells in us so richly, so deeply, that we can't keep it a secret. Yes, there's some people, they keep it less of a secret around it, and they may make you feel uncomfortable. I'm sorry, but just understand that something's going on in them so deeply, so powerfully, they can't keep it a secret. God has freed them probably of something so powerful that they can't help but celebrate it. And week in and week out, we get together, even when sometimes our mood, our attitude, our feelings don't want us to. We still hear this good news. It changes us, and we celebrate it. And then we listen to a guy for 45 minutes talk about it every week. I know, as you're staring and looking at me, I know it's crazy. It's crazy. But that's what sets us apart from the rest of the world. Not that we have something to do, not that you ought to do better, but Jesus says, it is done, it is finished. And I know your temptation, even now, will be to, as you leave this place, think to yourself, I need to try harder. I need to do better. But that isn't the good news. The good news is that Jesus has already done everything that you could never do. So therefore, we give thanks. We sing about this. We use hymns. We use spiritual songs. We use psalms. Ultimately, because we have gratitude. So let's wrap up for the next few minutes what this looks like in the most private sphere this is where it gets kind of controversial for us. And I want to point out the ways in which this was probably controversial to the original group of people who read this. And I want to point out the ways in which this is somewhat controversial to us as we read it today. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting into the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Slaves or bond servants, obey in everything, your earthly masters, not just doing it and going through the motions like people pleasers would do, but with sincerity of heart and with fear to the Lord. And so that whatever you do, you do for Jesus. Masters, treat your slaves, your bond servants, justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master also who is in heaven. So let's start with, with, with what was probably controversial to begin with. This group of people would have no problem, this is a highly patriarchal Primitive society from our standards, and their highest ideals were different than ours. Our country, our culture was founded on the ideal of fairness, right? We hold these truths, they're so great that they are self-evident, which is a weird word in and of itself. They're self-evident, that all men are created equal. And we both know, for the last couple hundred years, we've been trying to figure out what that really means. But our society was built on the ideal that things are fair, there is justice and fairness and equality. That's not what existed here. What existed here was power, and those who have power have authority, and those who have authority exercise it, and the rules were built around that, such that those with power could exercise it as they saw fit. Whether it's authority given to them by the government, authority of law, you can do these things, you can have power over people that you have authority and power over, and you can exercise it however you want. So it would have been no surprise for these people to hear the words, wives, submit to your husbands, because after all, this is a society in which this would have been common, Women, as we saw, have almost no sense of identity in this particular culture, such that they weren't even allowed to give an eyewitness testimony in a court of law, which I think is funny and ironic because who were the first people who gave the first testimony eyewitness of Jesus being risen? Women, neither here nor there, but that's what we'll celebrate in a couple weeks, right? So this is a weird thing in this society for us to consider, women who are powerless. And so it wouldn't have been anything Weird for Paul to say to these people, wives, submit to your husbands. It's fitting in the Lord. But then he does something weird. He goes, hey, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. For this particular society, in which it was probably okay and somewhat acceptable to, and I'm going to say this because my wife is not in the room, discipline your wife. That doesn't even feel right coming out of my mouth. Um, these people could discipline their wife, as quotes, discipline their wife as they saw fit. And maybe people would have been like, that's mean, but ultimately they'd be like, well, that's that's what you do. And the amazing thing here is, Paul is saying that, look, our loyalty in this world is not to authority and power, but our loyalty is to what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that means that our authority and power looks different. And husbands, you don't get to do whatever you want. Instead, you love your wives. You love your wives. Ephesians 5 says that husbands ought to love their wives so much that they lay down their life just like Jesus did for us. And the way that husbands lead is by the first one to throw themselves on their grenade for their wives. And the manliest possible thing a husband can do is to lay down his life for his wife. So how do we encourage that? I would challenge wives, wives even like Ephesians 5. Wives... Be a woman so full of character. Be a woman so full of integrity. Be a woman who follows Jesus so closely that all the men in this room, including your husband, would be stupid not to die for you. Let me brag on my wife on this particular thing, all right? This is easier for me to think about. I've I've gotten to a place now where it is not a big deal for me to think about dying for my wife. And the reason is because my wife, not just hopefully because I'm saying this, is more valuable than me. And I'm okay with the fact that if my wife were to die at the funeral, they would be like, man, I sure wish, Jonathan, you would have gone instead of her. I'm cool with that. She's that awesome. Her character is that good. Her integrity is that intact. She follows Jesus that closely, such that I would be an idiot not to fall in front of a train or traffic for her. And I hope you would agree. And if I were to lay down my life for my wife, if I threw myself in traffic to save my wife, at the funeral, they wouldn't be like, oh, he shouldn't have done that. People were going to go like, yeah, that that was was probably a good choice. That was a good decision. That was a wise investment. So let me brag on her and encourage you and her and, and other the wives that you see in this room that are doing this right Women be women of such character who follow Jesus so closely that a a husband would have no problem loving his wife. And by love, Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for the thing that he loves. Jesus did it, and men, we do it too. That would have been controversial. That would have been controversial at this particular time. It gets worse. It says also, hey, slaves, obey your masters. That wouldn't have bothered anyone because in a And a society not built on slavery, that would have been, yes, of course, stop, you know, don't don't break away. But then he adds something in verse 1 of chapter 4. Hey, masters, by the way, treat your bondservants, your slaves, justly and fairly. It would have been perfectly okay to treat a slave like property, to abuse, discipline, even kill. Do whatever you want to with that property. And yet Paul says here, Jesus has done something for you. And let it change the way you see people so much that even the people you have power over, you treat differently. But what about the stuff that's controversial to us? Wives, submit to your husbands. That probably hurts, right? What we want to hear is, wives, burn your bras, run for president, be the first woman president, right? That's what we want to hear be liberated. I mean, it's only been a few decades that we allow women to vote. Remember, it's equality, right? I mean, this is, women still don't get paid as much as a man in our society for the same job. It exists. And so when we say something like, wives, submit to your husbands, we think of all the scumbag husbands that don't deserve submission, don't we? And we wish it would say, wives, stick up for yourselves, hit them with a frying pan. I mean, that's that's what we think. That's what we, isn't, I mean, that, that's, because after all, all men are created equal. And we're just now figuring out what that even means. And so to say to a woman, submit to that dirtbag of a husband of yours, that's crazy. And instead of just lying to you and saying that that's not controversial, I'll just admit, that's scary. That's scary. And if husbands, that doesn't scare you, you don't get it. That's scary. But why would he say that? Because he's saying, what if a person was so transformed by the love of Christ that they would look at that dumb husband of theirs and actually follow him. What would that look like? Wouldn't that be radical? Wouldn't that look crazy in this society? Wouldn't that be a radical kind of love? For a husband to look out for the interests of his wife more than his own and for a wife to submit to her husband even though we know how flawed he is because we know how this has played out wrong and we resist the temptation to play to our strong suits and we just let the love of christ the word of christ dwell in us richly and change our relationships guys you know what this looks like right i can beat my wife in an arm wrestle i could put her in a headlock and tell her what to do how well is that going to work out I didn't mean that to be like, hey, try that. How will that work? No, that's not what I meant. I meant in that same sense that I think I might have this kind of authority or power over here. Do you know what she has the power to do? She has the power to crush me with two words. Crush me. And so I could choke hold her into submission, but dude, she can beat me into submission just by saying a couple of careful words, pushing a few special buttons. What if we loved each other like Christ loves us, such that I wouldn't take advantage of the buttons I could push, and she wouldn't take advantage of the buttons she could push. But instead, out of a mutual submission to one another, a mutual love for Jesus Christ, that we would do all things, whatever we do, in word and deed like Christ would want us to do, what would that look like in a marriage? And then the most controversial at the very end, he talks about bondservants or slaves, and he says, obey your masters. Masters, be nice to your slaves. Slaves, obey your masters. We want, we wish it would say, slaves, be like Django, break out and kill all the slave masters. Don't we? We wish this said, slaves, bust out, find Harriet Tubman, get out of there. Don't we? I mean, we're the people who ironically founded a culture on equality, right? We, we wanted all men who were created equal, right? They have the same rights. And then we were like, oh yeah, all men except for not really Not really all men. Those people like that, no, they're slaves. And those people like that, they don't get to vote. You get the picture? We're even just now learning this as a society, such that this is probably controversial, because we, we think equality is the highest ideal. And we even see our failure in that if you've been paying attention to the news over the last year in Ferguson, Missouri. It's still broken. And when we say, slaves, submit to your masters, we hopefully hear that pretty uncomfortably. But notice something here that's radical. There is a fate worse than slavery or death. There is a position and a character that's worse than being a slave, and that's not being in Christ. And the Bible isn't about equality socially. In fact, they mess it up a lot. But The Bible is about salvation that God has given to us in Jesus. And what if our highest ideal was really a belief that Jesus is all and through all? Wouldn't that change our relationships? So, here's how I want to illustrate this. This week, Tuesday, is St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. Saint. So he sort of was a Christian, right? St. Patrick. I want to tell you a story about St. Patrick. St. Patrick, when he was 16 years old, was abducted by pirates who took him in a slave ship back to Ireland. And for six years, he was a slave. He was a slave. And after six years in slavery, he came to believe that Jesus could save him. And when he broke out and made it all the way back to his home place, you know what he did? Instead of making like Django and all going back to Ireland to kill the slaves, you know what he did? He had a vision that the people in Ireland needed to know the good news of Jesus. Jesus. And so he went as a missionary, beaten by the people he first came to, beaten, stripped naked, robbed, and he planted churches and he ordained leaders in those churches to the point that he became the bishop of Ireland and now the saint of Ireland. And we celebrate this amazing move of the gospel by getting wasted, drinking green beer and wearing green, right? Right? And pinching those people who don't. Because I don't know. Because I don't know. What if? We wish St. Patrick would, we wish the story would have been, hey, St. Patrick, he was set free from slavery, and he went back like Django and killed a bunch of people in Ireland. That would have been pretty cool. That's a hero story. You can make a movie about that. But what if? what if we put off the old self? and put on the new self, the radical new self. The radical new self that instead of wanting revenge would go back to the people who abused and enslaved them such that they would hear the good news and be saved by it. So let's celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Go to a place where they're wearing green. Go to a place where they're wearing green. Celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Be temperate. The Bible says a whole lot of good stuff about getting drunk and that's not a good thing. Pretty categorically sinful, all right? Just put that in mind, all right? But what if you go to a place, celebrate St. Patrick's Day, and the thing that you put on is the kind of love that instead of wanting revenge on a slave master, wants forgiveness. What if we put on, like this tells us, a kind of compassion and kindness that looks silly to the world such that instead of wanting revenge, we want good news to be heard by even our enemy. Wouldn't that be a little different? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you do, that, you do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. you finished it in Jesus Christ. And so what's left for us, God, is to put off all the things that are inconsistent with that, and to begin putting on something that would look radical in our culture. It would look radical in our marriages, in our homes, in our relationships with our children, our families. It would look radical in our relationship with coworkers. It would look radical to people who have power over us, and it would look radical to the people we have power over. Let's put on that kind of good news in such a way. That the world sees it, God. If there's some of us they haven't heard this good news, they didn't know that Jesus would do this. Uh, man, may they hear this good news and just like Saint Patrick, would they, would they go running, go running back to those who are lost, sharing this good news because they've been changed by it. And for those of us we've heard it, God, we, we've heard this good news, but we're just sitting on it. We're keeping it a secret. Would we begin to really put it on? Would we really, really begin to put on the effects? and the uniform of our new position in Jesus Christ such that it changes the relationships we have with the people we love the most and it changes the way the world looks at us because our loyalty to Jesus is so out of line and so out of whack with the things our culture worships. We want you to get the glory for this even if it means doing things that look like going back into slavery, it looks like going back into abuse, it looks like going into a terrible situation, we know that, God, you're going to do something for our good and for your glory. We know this in Jesus Christ. Amen.